Um, my name is Philip Crescia, I'm the Programme Manager for Project London, which sounds a bit weird, it's a project and I'm the Programme Manager. But it's uh, run by Doctors of the World UK, which is actually an international humanitarian organisation. Um, we've set up in, in the UK, just to give you a quick overview of Project London, it's a health advocacy programme, so the aim is to see people but then help them access the NHS services. So we have a volunteer-led walking clinic, so we have volunteer doctors, nurses and support workers who help us engage with individuals who come to the, to the clinic and then advocate on their behalf to help them access the NHS services. We are not an alternative to your own GP or a family doctor. Um, we will help you if you turn up and have issues with your own GP, but we will not be seen as an alternative. You can't get access to your own GP or you're, you're not happy with what they're, what, what, what they're describing you. We also help everyone regardless of their immigration status or actually where they live. So even though we're called Project London, we see people from outside of London, we'll be happy to help them. Uh, we're just quite overwhelmed now with the, with the, the, the need, that unfortunately, which is why we haven't expanded out of London at the moment. Um, we aim to provide a holistic service, so it's not just looking at the health issues, it's thinking about the social issues that might be impacting on health. So very much um, thinking about immigration status, health, how could that person move on from out their irregular status that they're in and get and get regularised? Also looking at things that helping to support um, English class, simple things like English classes, which can just empower people. So the aim is to not just focus on the health, but look at the kind of the wider issues that someone might have. We mainly assist on helping individuals register with a GP, which is why I'm going to give you a bit of an overview of primary care um, and basically what the rules are. And in fact, there's no regulations on primary care access. So there's nothing with regards to excluding individual groups from primary care access, so registering with the GP. Therefore, your GP down the road can register any person that walks through the door, regardless of them being refused asylum seeker, an irregular entrance, <coughs> user overstayer, um, as we called it in other undocumented migrants. They can, if they want, also register someone on a tourist visa. It's their discretion to take those individuals in. The problem in this area is the discretion, which is the thing that GPs apply and sometimes apply incorrectly. But what they're not meant to do is discriminate in who they apply that discretion to. So if um, I walk in, they should be asking the same documentation of me as they ask of an irregular entrant. So that may be that way that they don't discriminate. However, if they say, I don't care about documentation, and I will happy to see and register anyone, then they can register that irregular entrant the same as they would register me. So there's no issues actually of who is excluded in um, GP registrations. This, um, this discretion lies in the contracts that they have at the moment, the general medical services contracts. There's nothing in legislation, um, there's no actual Department of Health guidance, even though lots of GPs will tell you that there is, that doesn't exist actually. Um, Obviously the contract may change with the new NHS reforms, but what this has been is backed up by uh, organisations like the British Medical Association, the Royal College of GPs um, and the Good um, General Medical Council as well. It's saying that you should be looking at clinical need and actually immigration status and nationality and residency um, are basically irrelevant to registering someone um, for G uh, primary care access. Um, that's that's Obviously, in theory, I will go on to the reality, but I will just cover <coughs> secondary care as well, because although while we don't see a lot of issues, with, well, we're starting to see increasing issues in secondary care access, um, there was uh, legislation brought in in 2004, and then it was updated in 2011, and it's all based around being ordinarily resident, so living in the country legally, um, or intending to settle there, but legally. <coughs> so what happened is in 2004 this was introduced, so looking at people who might not be ordinarily resident, if you're not, then you're chargeable and you're seen as an overseas visitor. So that could be someone who has been in the country for 10 years, which we've seen. Um, they've never regularised their status. If the hospital found out about their status, they'd be chargeable, regardless of the fact that they haven't just arrived um, and are trying to access NHS services. In 2011, this was challenged by uh, a lawyer um, in terms of ordinary residents. So what, they, what he was challenging was the fact that someone who comes in as intending to claim asylum 
you're uh, at port of entry, you're allowed to, uh, you're given temporary admission. Therefore, you've never actually entered the country illegally, so to say, because you've alerted yourself to the authorities and then your intention is to go to the Home Office and claim asylum and stay in the system. So what you were saying is even if someone is refused at the end of it, as long as they're not deported or given removal directions, then they're legally in the country because you're allowing them to stay there, in which case they should be seen as ordinary residents. Um, so that was brought forward sorry, in 2009, and then what happened was the judgment actually went in, in, in his favour, and it was excellent. All refused asylum seekers will get healthcare access for free, and then obviously has a positive impact on other undocumented uh, migrants as well. Of course, this was challenged, I think, with um, you know, backing from the Home Office, obviously. Um, and they refused the, 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 the concept of someone being a refused asylum seeker being ordinarily resident. So we went kind of back to square one, although they did improve, improve the guidance slightly. In 2011, they had a review, a consultation, where they were looking at access to healthcare for foreign nationals. And what they did was introduce further um, uh, regulations in this and some improvements as well I should say. So what they did in 2011 was bring in um, um, charge anyone who has incurs a debt of £1,000 that could have an impact on their future immigration application. So in effect if you um, have a sh student visa let's say you fall ill your visa uh, overruns, but your intention is, was always to stay here and study further. If you tried to, if you could pay the money off that you owe to the NHS, then it could impact any future visa applications. Um, there is not a case yet that we've been able to bring forward to, to test what happens um, when, when this, um, what, what since they brought in this legislation. But we're always just looking out for this test case to challenge that that part of the legislation. The other thing they did, they did make some improvements, which I'll go on to in terms of entitlements. So this is a very simplified version, and the entitlements are, are a bit longer than this, actually, but these are the ones that most people are interested in. So they, within asylum seekers, and I put asylum seekers rather than refuse asylum seekers, because what they did was they actually extended it to people on Section 4 and Section 95 support. So anyone who's now um, under the care of NAS or the Home Office are aware that they cannot be removed or they're too vulnerable um, to, to, be, to be left without support, they now are entitled to full NHS care. So your secondary care, absolutely no problem. So you've, obviously you've got your refugees who are entitled, your EEA national, so um, all this thing about Romanians, Bulgarians not being allowed to access secondary care, we would challenge that as well. Um, because if their intention is to settle and stay, then they, they are perfectly entitled. Anyone on a dependency visa, so someone who's coming in with their spouse who's on a work visa, work student visas, um, those from countries bilateral health agreement, so there is a thing about being from, I think Australia has a bilateral health agreement with the UK at the moment. Victims of human trafficking, as long as they are working with the authorities to prosecute their trafficking. So they have like a 45 day kind of period where they can decide whether they're going to do it or not. After that, if you don't work with the authorities, you're kind of left outside as a, I guess, <coughs> another undocumented migrant. There's exempt categories of treatment as well. So your accident emergency, if you set for in a hospital in an emergency situation, you will be treated for free then. When you become an inpatient, that's when you can be chargeable. So the likelihood is that they will continue to give you the treatment, but just rack up your bill. Um, and then and, until you're discharged. Um, sexually transmitted infections, um, and I don't know if you heard last week, um, the HIV lobby group won a massive, um, uh, well, won massively in, in putting HIV into the exemption category now as well. Before, it was a case of you could get your testing, you could get your counselling, but your treatment wasn't for free, which sounds crazy, it's a public health issue just like the others. But they finally managed to get the Department of Health to change their mind on that, and it's now included. That will go into effect from October, I think, because it has to be introduced into legislation again. Um, continuing course of treatment. So this is when someone um, has, say, has a, outstanding, uh, they've got an assignment application. In the middle of their treatment, medical treatment, they find out that they've been refused. If that treatment needs to continue, it will carry on for free. If there is, obviously, there is a, there's an issue regarding kind of 
um, changing um, kind of um, changing your treatment, whether it will be the continuing treatment or whether it will be a new with, when you're starting new treatment. Um, you can be sectioned from the mental health act for free. I mean, again, strange, but uh, that you could. They don't want to give you the care beforehand, but wait until you're um, sectionable. Treatment for infectious diseases such as TB, etc. All those things where you know we are at risk. Um, but those are treated for free as well. Um, the other thing that the, the 2009 um, judgment did was look at clinical needs when someone is um, chargeable. So making sure that people aren't just discharged, just aren't treated in an emergency, gone on your way, we've stabilised you, that's it. To look at the clinical needs, but also whether that person could be, could legitimately return home in that in the time so looking at urgent such as cancer because obviously you don't need necessarily need to provide that immediately but if you're if you are not given chemotherapy then the likelihood is that you're going to deteriorate and you're going to end up in an emergency situation and there's individuals who can't be returned such as people from Somalia so in which case um, you need to treat them because they're not likely to be able to return home um, and then non-urgent I would just quickly see um, in terms of reality, I'll just quickly, we see um, increasing numbers every year um, and we see ranging immigration statuses, so asylum seekers, refugees, those we would call completely entitled and those who have issues um, with their immigration status, so refused asylum seekers, other undocumented migrants. We see, um, I mean as you can see, we see largely um, <coughs> South, South Asians or Southeast Asians um, but we are based in Tower Hamlets, which is where there's a large Bengali population, so we would expect to see um, that as quite a high number. We're starting recently to see more Ugandans because they're fleeing the whole issue around sexual orientation persecution. And it's interesting the number of people who are coming and saying, I'm fled for exactly that reason. Um, so that number has been increasing. Obviously, this is biased because word of mouth works the best in undocumented migrant communities. You trust you what your friend will say rather than a service advertising a free service. Um, just to give you a quick overview of 2011, um, <coughs> within the 1,288 new people we saw 545 had tried to register <coughs> themselves. So actually had gone and approached a GP and for whatever reason were refused or couldn't get access. So that could be that they just, they didn't have the documents that they, that GP surgery was asking for. Could be simple like proof of address that they can't present could be that they had language difficulties. Um, but some of the other barriers that they face is a lot of people just don't understand how to access the NHS system. It's a very strange system compared to their own country where you maybe just pay and go directly to a specialist, whereas here you go to a generalist and then you're going to be referred to a specialist. Also the issue amongst them is being reported or arrested. They do feel that the NHS and the GP surgery is linked to the authorities and, and it may well have been the same situation in their country of origin and that just translates it to here. Obviously, when they haven't been able to access kind of primary care services, there, uh, there is a knock-on effect. What are the alternatives to them? Well, A&E otherwise, which is costly, um, and, and walking centres. Although we've seen some people who are paying to go and see private GPs, and amongst, say, the Chinese population, it's very much go to see your herbalist. Then the herbalist says, I can't do anything for you go to Project London or go find you need further NHS care. Um, just to give you an overview of our findings, and this is the last slide, um, we have found that um, individuals who we would say are entitled to care, so asylum seekers, refugees have been refused care, they haven't been able, hasn't been very easy for them to register with the GP. Um, the secondary care charging was all in relation to health tourism, so this whole idea that people are coming here just to access the NHS and we don't have any evidence to support that. People are here on average about three years before they come to present themselves to us. And not, I mean, we're not going to dispute the fact that there are going to be individuals who do, but largely there is no evidence, and there's no evidence from the government as well to, 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 to support the idea of health tourism. Um, we do see that there are in, uh, GP surgeries that are asking for people's nationality and immigration statuses um, when, when we are approaching them on someone's behalf. So we do think that there could be clear grounds for um, kind of fighting discrimination uh, as well. We've had cases where someone has said, we don't take Chinese people, it's simple as that. And it's not so simple as saying you can't take Chinese people. Um, 
we have seen what, what is happening essentially in primary care is that the secondary care rules, which are a bit more um, defined, are being applied at the primary care level. So you've got these, these things about guidance that you should be here six months before you access secondary care, um, or you need to present all this information to, to show that you're entitled to NHS care, is being misapplied at primary care level. Um, and this has been fueled by the PCTs, unfortunately, fueled by the counter fraud departments, um, and that misinformation amongst the health care staff is quite prevalent now, unfortunately. Um, we've had cases where um, a GP surgery has told us they don't take asylum seekers, full stop. And then we've had to challenge them, and they've gone, oh dear, we didn't realise that actually they are entitled. And, and so a lot of, there's a lot of having to challenges, challenge their, their ideas. Incorrect application of the guidance, this is related to secondary care. We've seen cases where individuals are not, are, are not being seen on their clinical need. It's administrative officers, so the overseas payment officers, getting involved in deciding how much, um, how much treatment they're going to have and then trying to get them discharged or saying, no, you can't give them anything, they're chargeable, get them out of here as soon as possible. So we've seen that in practice. Um, and obviously we've seen that because people are um, delayed in getting the access, they're having more complications. Um, and obviously the knock-on effect is the economics of it. If you're going to refuse some of primary care access, it's going to cost you three times more when they present to A&E. And we've also had a recent case where someone was delayed treatment for a whole year, um, and she now has, I think, four consultants having to coordinate her care, whereas she might have had one or two if she'd been able to get that treatment earlier on. Um, but I'll leave it there. Sorry, I've gone on. Sorry but to... Um, no, no, it's fine. Get, um, it's fascinating. I think we'll pick up yeah. a lot in, in the um, discussion. But um, hand over to um, about uh, access to justice. I'm just going to see if that's all right. I hope everyone can hear me. So uh, my name is Ruth Anner. I'm a lawyer at Tegna Miller in um, East Oxford, and I specialise in immigration and welfare benefits. So I'm just going to talk, I have some pretty PowerPoints, I'm afraid. Um, I was just going to talk a little bit about the reality of um, uh, migrants and uh, welfare benefits in general. So um, a quick voice through, and I'll quickly keep an eye. So just generally in terms of eligibility, looking at um, different categories of migrants and why they may be eligible. So beginning with the, the area that I specialise in is uh, European nationals and their family members. So obviously when somebody's exercising a treaty right, um, they have their right to reside. Uh, certain, which is, which is the first test in, in the, in the um, test for, for most, well, for, for a bulk of benefits, you've got the habitual residence test, which is divided into two steps, the first of which is right to reside, the second of which is habitual residence itself, so it's a massive circular test. Um, in terms of right to reside, EA nationals exercising treaty rights and their family members, um, problems with those are the categories within those where one is expected to, be, to hold um, comprehensive sickness insurance. So you have uh, students and those who are self-sufficient are, uh, within the wording of the directive, expected to have comprehensive sickness insurance. People like me have worked for many years assuming that that is entitlement to NHS care. Um, the Home Office's view at the moment is very much not. Um, and unfortunately that was tested uh, relatively recently last summer in a case in the Court of Appeal, where the Court of Appeal found that um, a right of residence wasn't acquired by some a European national who'd been here for more than five years as a student. Um, interestingly enough, a very recent case in um, well, December 2011, about three recent, in uh, the Upper Tribunal for Benefits, where the Upper Tribunal uh, judge there um, made a comment separate to the um, case itself, where he he accepted entitlement to NHS as satisfying that requirement. So that will continue to be fought, and that's one of the ones that the European Commission is also not very happy about in the UK's um, approach. Um, but one of the other uh, categories of um, those with the right to reside where there is a, a problem in relation to benefits is your job seeker. So you have a right to reside here when you're a job seeker. That can go on for, in my view, an indeterminate amount of time. In the Home Office's view, there's nice little clubs that they like to accept. Um, the problem I see in practice for people who are job seekers or have retained worker status by being a job seeker following a period of employment um, 
is the difference in definition of what a job seeker is in those um, in those sections of Regulation Six of the two thousand six regulations. Um, in one of them, when you retain worker status, there are uh, set requirements on how long you've worked before and whether your uh, job seeking is genuine and effective, whether you are registered with the appropriate authorities. None of those apply to being a job seeker in itself under Regulation 1A. So there are two sections, and of course, an EEA national could be a worker, could retain worker status. If they no longer keep to one of those things, they can jump back to being a job seeker and retain their right of residence. None of those are things that are liked in, in practice, but those are those are where we stand. Um, so, just back to the habitual residence test, um, at the moment the European Commission is um, uh, making complaints about us for not, um, for not, for, for the fact that it's discriminatory, that we're actually, that we're putting on requirements on European nationals that are different and higher than we would to, to parallel UK nationals. Um, the, we haven't quite got to the official proceedings on auction with the moment, but we have had a, we have had a complaint and the UK was supposed to answer by uh, November 2011, I believe the complaint was in September, and I don't believe there's been any action yet taken on that. So just to go through what um, what the DWP does in relation to assessing habitual residents, they'll go through the right to reside first, which is your uh, lawful residence under the, under the regulations or directive, and then they'll look at your habitual residence, which is a variety of factors which are unnamed and uh, non-exhaustive list, but things like where your main centre of interest is, your length and continuity of residence, the nature of your employment here and maybe in other places in your history to find places where where you might be able to be placed as more centrally, um, and the intention of the claimant, which is the one that, in my view anyway, and that's how I find my cases, is that's the crucial one. You may have landed you know, today, if your intention is to make your home here, then technically you are actually resident, and that's that has been shown in case law, although you can, depending on circumstances, you can go on. So in practical circumstances, if somebody is refused benefit on that basis, um, the advice to them is apply again, because by the time they've come to see me, they'll have waited a week or two, they have two weeks further into their habitual residence, they've got their case fixes, mm -hmm. just keep going. Um, so uh, I will come now to a little, before I go on to other categories, a little bit about what you do when things go wrong, when things go wrong extremely frequently. So even in the cases where I've, I've given you some difficult statuses, even in the nice easy ones that we could all look at it and say, clearly you have a right to reside as a European national who's got a job. Um, it's not actually that simple. So doing it on that basis, somebody who's here, they've got a job, they're working, they have a family, they're entitled to all of the benefits that go around that, their family-related ones, top up of income, working tax credit, all of those kinds of things. Entitled to all of those. They will do as any of us would do. They will claim the ones that need to be claimed from the job centre. This is assuming they know. So you've got the job centre, you've got the local authority, potentially for your housing benefits, and you've got the HMRC for your tax credits and child benefits. You're really a bit from there, So you'll approach all of those, you'll make your claims. Um, in general, I would say, and I, I hate to make sweeping statements, but I'm going to have to, in general, their first stop will be no. It won't be a no as a, as a formal refusal, it will be a no as in no you can't apply. Um, so, so there's your first barrier. And how you get past that, when you've already had to find out because different places to go, um, how you get past that is very, very difficult. My advice to people um, when they've made it to me, which is another barrier for them, um, when they've made it to me, my advice is go back, insist that you want to claim. If they won't let you claim, get the name of the person you're dealing with, and although the job centre, don't, they don't give out names anymore, but you, you will usually manage to get the first name out of them, which is enough for you. So name of the person who stopped you, and time and date that you've been there. Um, obviously, if you're allowed to make the claim and get a refusal, you're going through formal appeal procedures or reconsiderations, I'll come to that afterwards. So there is a procedure once you've got it, but there will be a barrier even from getting to that, to that position. Um, I'll come to what I'll do with my name and, and date and time of uh, accessing the DWP at the end. Um, so that's some, some European stuff. In the from last year, from March 2011, we had the case of um, Zambrano, uh, hugely um, a huge impact on the rights of residents of non-EA national parents of British national children. Um, slightly different circumstance here than it was for the Zambranos themselves in. Um, Belgium, but uh, hugely significant for a lot of people, a lot of people who may have been clients of our firm for a long, long time with almost nowhere to take their, their uh, 
status quo. Um, in practice, completely and utterly ineffective at the moment, despite how much we try. Um, the UKBA introduced some guidance in September, so that was called six months after the judgment itself, saying that they are thinking about Zambrano and its effect on uh, people that it might apply to here. Um, that they are going to amend, interestingly enough, they're going to amend the 2006 regs to um, to include Zambrano. Of course, it doesn't sit there at all, it's something to do with the 2004 directive, but anyway, they want to bung it in there. Um, while they're, while they're waiting to amend them and work out how they're going to amend them, they um, will take applications from people on the form that's usually used for a family member residence card of an EEA national. Um, of course, the form has no, none of the right box to tick on it to say what you're applying for. Um, you won't get a residence card. What you get is a certificate of application, which is the first stage in any of these applications, which can be used to show an employer that you not that you have the right to work, but that the employer may use that in defence if any action is taken against them for employing you. So you might get that letter if you can show that you potentially fulfil the um, requirements of, of Zambrano. What they count that is um, a British national child, I don't know sure they do say child, British, British national dependent, um, sole carer of British national dependent, um, and, and that's all you should be showing. Now, my view would argue with that anyway. The Zambrano case itself wasn't one parent, there were two, so there's no reason why you would need to be a sole carer, but that would be an argument that happen at some point. Um, evidence that you are, that the, that the, the British national is dependent on you, I mean, in general, and I have quite a few of these cases, you're looking at British passports or, um, or other evidence that the child is a British citizen. Um, birth certificate which shows that your client, that the mother is the, is the mother of that child. Um, if a child is under a certain age, I would have thought that it would be you know, no need to argue that they are dependent on their mother in those circumstances. Um, those are not being accepted by the Home Office at the moment. They're saying that that isn't sufficient evidence. Um, I've received certificate of applications in a few cases where I've sent evidence of British National, evidence of relationship between them, and supporting letter from social services pointing out that this person is the primary carer of that child and is the only one and always has been. Um, that, even that doesn't always get a certificate of application, so I'm not entirely sure it, it does after a fight, but it doesn't work on its own. So somebody on their own making this kind of application, who knows what they would do? They're using an application form that doesn't sit with their circumstances, and they would have to know a lot about the law and where their rights stem from to take that any further. Um, the other outstanding issue, for example, I'll leave if you get your certificate of application, is uh, what else are you entitled to? Are you entitled to benefits? If so, which benefits? Um, Zambrano case itself, obviously contribution-based unemployment benefits. Um, in the British parallel situation, you're not going to have, you're very unlikely to have um, contributions um, collected by somebody in that, in that circumstance. Would you be entitled to income-based? I would argue yes, and I'm on my way to fighting it. Um, but again, as these things go, and we'll see this through the whole thing, is. You, you know, you fight on small cases and it's much easier for the DWP or the Home Office to concede on your individual case than it is to go on and set anything down in, uh, in case law to, to affect the others who will be affected. So that's my whiz through European, my running out of time already. Uh, okay, I'll leave refugees and scientists because I'm sure you all know about those. I've got one other category of, of difficult people, um, just in terms of um, from the categories of people who do have recourse to public funds, the other big category is those people with discretionary leave. So limited leave of one kind or another, um, discretionary leave is given up to three years, so in a chunk up to three years, anything from 10 days to, to three years lawfully, usually we see three months, six months, or up to three years. At the end of your period, you can apply to extend. When you've had six years of discretionary leave, you can apply for indefinite leave as long as you satisfy all the other requirements. Um, so discretionary leave can have a uh, no recourse attachment, but doesn't usually, and we would always argue that it shouldn't. Um, but people in those circumstances, one of the main problems I see for them, less in terms of benefits, because they do get it from the DWP, um, more in terms of, of housing, allocation of local authority housing. The 2006 regs in relation to, to allocation of housing 
talk about exceptional leave, which is what we used to call it. Um, we don't call it that anymore, and they haven't changed their rule, uh, their, their regulation. Now, it's not exceptional leave in inverted commas, so it's leave given outside of the immigration laws, which is what discretionary leave is. But that's an endless argument, and most local authorities will jump on that very quickly because you haven't got written in your passport that they leave on their list. And again, you're looking at challenges. Um, my bit on entitlement I won't go into because I was just going to go through the complicated nature of means-tested, non-means-tested, contribution-based, non-contribution-based, how anybody's supposed to ever know what they're supposed to apply for and how they do it, and of course that's not facilitated by any of the agencies involved for anybody, migrants or not. Um, so challenges when things go wrong. I've talked a little bit about being you know, stopped from applying and what you can do in those circumstances. Um, if you're refused and it you know and, and shouldn't have been looking at appeal, just to go through the process a little bit, you you make your your request for appeal in writing, your notice refusing you should have given you your rights of appeal and procedures, that doesn't always happen, which means that your notice in itself is unlawful. Pragmatically, do you want to be arguing to get a lawful refusal notice? No, you want things to go as quickly as possible so you can start raising money. So you're appealing, appeal and writing. Each of them, local authority, DWP, HMRC, will all do the same thing, which is first they will look again at their decision or reconsider different talking different areas. If they can decide it in your favour, they will do. If they can't, they'll stick by what they said, give you written reasons for it, and send the case on to the tribunal service. The tribunal service has delays routinely, I would say, the quickest from lodging your appeal and getting an appeal hearing. In my experience over the last few years would be nine months as a minimum. So in that time you are stuck, um, which is a very, very, very long time to be waiting. Even then, you're looking at very high percentage of uh, adjournments at the first appeal hearing and then on and on. Um, how do you make it go faster? The only way you could go faster is to take legal action to judicial review the delay. So judicial review of, of endless delays. The whole problem here, <laughs> sorry, this is neat, the whole problem with all of this, any of the assistance we're claiming, challenging at appeal, judicially reviewing any of it along the way, you need somebody to help you to do it. You need some advice, representation, and assistance. Where do you get that? That's well, uh, nowhere. There's not very many people left who do welfare benefits work at all. Um, mm -hmm. Those who do mostly won't touch immigration issues because the two are complicated and difficult. Um, there are very few lawyers left doing welfare benefits anyway, um, which, when you are one, can be great because you can send a letter for action through to the DWP and you get a response in half an hour, which doesn't happen with the home office. But there, is, there aren't many people out there doing it. Um, how does that leave us for the future? Of course, I was going to say with absolutely nothing since welfare benefits were being taken completely out of scope. The Lords yesterday appear to have saved us from that. But bear in mind, although that's a, a success and we can all be very happy for it, um, what's in scope anyway? Not very much. The welfare benefits provision in the Lays at the moment is minimal. You get advice and assistance and, and assistance with pres presenting your case. You get no representation of tribunals. So you have to go there on your own. Um, that's not paid for. And it's all on fixed fee cases. And the fixed fee for welfare benefits case is £150. £150 of the lawyer's time would not normally be very much. These cases take hours and hours and hours and months and months and months, and um, it's all a bit dire. Can I do one more sentence? <laughs> <laughs> one, one little bit just to throw it out there, since it is um, International Women's Day, I think it's topical, and do a little bit of um, women's issues related, and that, that's in relation to European, um, the European approach and, and uh, pregnancy, and the problems we have there in terms of, you know, yes, you can have your longer absence or, or being, I think now with the recent case of Diaz, we can count 12 months of not being uh, exercising treaty rights even if you're in your home in the state, would still not take you away from, from your permanent residence, but how you function during that time, which is a huge issue, so that's going to be for us. I think if we take away one thing from your presentations, this would be the sheer complexity of how anyone can find their way through a bill. Over to you on the occupation. How long have I got, Sarah? 15? <laughs> 10 to 15. 10 to 15, alright, okay. Uh, right, I might have to miss out on two things just for 
economy of speed. Um, yeah, afternoon everyone. Thank, thanks for inviting me. My name is Bill Bolton. Um, I'm a teacher uh, by profession. Uh, I'm based in London, although I often work outside of London. Uh, just about all of, all of my work over the last 20 years or so has been focused on work uh, either directly with uh, young refugees and asylum seekers and other migrants or working with the schools that they attend or the local authorities where, where they're living. Um, I currently work for London Borough of Brent for two to three days a week. Uh, I also work as a freelance consultant and trainer and writer, uh, mainly on issues around, around this migration, refugee children, um, equality issues more and more. I'm um, going to look at um, accessing education and uh, three sort of themes that I'm really going to touch on. The importance of understanding the diversity of uh, children and young people from migrant backgrounds. The issue of uh, the understanding of or even the lack of understanding of children and young people's rights and entitlements to education and what kind of things um, we know help and assist uh, children and young people to, to obtain their rights and, and access school or other education settings. Um, well, this group has been described you know, quite, quite obviously as a multifaceted and diverse group. We're talking about refugee children, asylum seekers, um, unaccompanied asylum seeker children and young people, other children separated from families and parents, uh, a bigger sort of category, undocumented young people, also trafficked children and young people. Uh, in terms of refugees, um, well, we know quite a lot about refugee children in the UK. There's been a lot of research, a huge amount of research and reports about their experiences uh, in education and other parts of their lives. We, we don't have a very good estimate of numbers. I mean, that figure that you see there came from um, early noughties uh, from Jill Rutter, who's quite a prominent uh, writer and commentator on refugee children's issues. Uh, there's been no really robust recent research. The best estimates are usually uh, at a local level where we can use um, ethnicity and languages data to get quite good local estimates at school or local authority level. Um, in, in London, refugee children are a very significant part of our school population. The largest group are from Somalia. Um, and in terms of undocumented children, um, I mean, I draw people's attention to Nando's working paper, Being Children Undocumented in the UK, goes into quite an um, important discussion about how we unpack that term, undocumented. Um, it also discusses some of the main sources of data and statistics. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, Nando. Uh, 104,000 to 216,000 was one of the sort of estimates that, that you um, suggested there. It includes children without regular status. Young people refuse to sign them, but they can't go back to their country of origin. Uh, people who've overstayed visas, people with no papers uh, or documentation. Uh, migrant children who entered independently and those with their families but also children born in the UK to parents without a legal or a settled status. And again, it's really important to emphasise the diversity. And I'm not going to go through all these points. I mean, all of these are quite obvious, really. But there is a, there's this tendency to be quite reductive, I think, particularly about refugee children. You know, we just talk about their experiences back there in the country of origin. That, that's the, that they're the issues that people think are really important. You know, armed conflict, political violence, persecution, uh, the journeys to safety, but actually, you know, there's a tendency then to actually ignore, you know, what's actually going on in the UK. What what are the pressures here? What are the stresses on on children, young people, and their families? Um, I'm not going to talk about this uh, much, but I draw your attention to the the paper it came from, Educational Interventions for Refugee Children, by Hamilton, the more really seminal text that uh, tried to provide a, a better kind of theoretical understanding of children's experiences and one of the things that they suggest there, and this is a model that they use drawn from develop developmental psychology, is that although experiences are very diverse, you know, there, there are models or lenses that we can place on those divergent experiences that help us understand experiences, how children and young people adapt and manage all those transitions and the impact of what the writers call atypical conditions. Um, conditions that will impact on or undermine children's normal healthy development and well-being and they emphasize transmigration you know the journeys between countries and children's experiences and they also draw our attention again towards you know, this post-migration experiences what's happening here and now 
And again, I mean, some speakers already have touched on a number of these. You know, accessing services, poor health, um, racism, isolation, the risk of detention and removal, uh, difficulties in accessing all kinds of services that they need, and uh, often this fear of detection or mistrust of services. Uh, this is quite a good, uh, another way of sort of looking at, looking holistically that, you know, acknowledging that children and young people are affected by a range of different factors, both past and in the present, negative and positive. And again, it suggests to us that we need to think and look holistically at those experiences and the situations that they're in. That obviously suggests that uh, the types of support that we will provide will also be multifaceted and holistic as well, or they, <coughs> or they should be. Um, the experiences of accessing services in general, but probably particularly education, have been described as, uh, as this continuous negotiation between needs and aspirations and the constraints placed uh, because of a lack of status. And these constraints will affect young people differently depending on you know, their experiences, the type of status or lack of status, their age, their gender, their country of origin, their ethnic group and the experiences that they have. And um, you can see Refugee Youth there, I really recommend. I don't know if you can still get it. Can you see this? This is a report devised by young people called Becoming a Londoner. And one of the great things is, yeah, it's actually it's a little suitcase. So, which can be opened and carried. And I'm just going to read you two quotes from young people um, in the report. Here's one uh, young refugee says, Current asylum policy can have devastating effects on our lives, particularly for young people who come to the UK alone, unaccompanied. Many of us are living in limbo for years. This time is characterised by uncertainty and fear. And then the, another young person said, You can't speak to the police. You can't access health care. You can't access rights. You can't be a Londoner because you're trying to be invisible. Quite simply, some of, the, some of us in this country are scared to grow up. The three Ds, dispersal, detention and deportation, are all frightening prospects. And uh, if I had time, I might have shown a clip from... This is a, it's a, a very powerful short film called How Am I Different? Seeking Asylum. It was on Teachers TV. Uh, well, one of Michael Gove's first acts was actually to stop the funding for Teachers TV, so uh, the whole archive went down. But if you, if you look for it, uh, you should find it on YouTube. Or there's other, um, I think Times Educational Supplement have archived most of the material. And uh, otherwise, if you email me, I can probably send you a link to it. But this, this is a really good film about a young Kosovo woman, a young girl, and about her struggles just to, uh, just to get into education and then, make, and then keep herself in education. And, and realise her aspirations when there's so many other pressures around. It's a really powerful uh, short film. And we know from, and this is like a common theme from the research, we know that going to school is tremendously important for young refugees and other migrants. It's a consistent theme that you read about again and again and again. And it's the thing that is invariably identified by young people themselves. They want to go to school. They want to be normal. They want to be doing the things that other children and young people are, are engaged in. And here was some research in Glasgow about 10, 10 or so years ago, Save the Children. They interviewed uh, more than 700 young asylum seekers from 27 schools. That was quite a serious uh, piece of work. More than three quarters said that school was the best thing about living in Glasgow. That going to school helped them feel normal, make friends and learn English. Um, rights and entitlements. Well, you know, this, this is an absolutely sort of key issue, I think. And I mean, we could have a whole sort of afternoon sort of just looking at legal rights and entitlements and exploring what they are and, and how they function. Um, and clearly, um, the right to education is protected by a number of important international legal instruments. Again, if you look at Nando's paper, he lists all them in a table and uh, goes into some detail about them. But just, just looking briefly in the UK, um, I mean, this is absolutely clear. I and mean, this is what the, what the government say, the DfE, Department of Education. Local authorities have a legal duty to ensure education is available for all children of compulsory school age. And it applies irrespective of a child's immigration status or rights of residence in a particular location. And it includes children from asylum seeker and refugee backgrounds. I mean, it's a really clear statement that children are entitled 
And indeed, they should be in school because the UKBA's advice to parents sort of parallels that, saying, you know, you need to be aware it's compulsory to have your children in full-time education between 5 and 16. Um, however, um, yeah, these, they're, they're the rights, that's what the law says. The, the reality may be uh, often very, very different. And both you know, uh, Ruth Anna and Fizzer have picked up on, you know, actually people do experience uh, discrimination when they try and access education. I've mentioned the Equality Act because that's the main form of redress, really. Uh, and it's the act which brings together all the... Pre I don't know if you know about the Equality Act 2010, but it brings together all the previous legislation on equality in the UK. And it applies to schools, because schools are public bodies, as, uh, as are defined in the Act. And uh, it, would be, it would be unlawful. It would be unlawful direct discrimination for schools to... Uh, discriminate against a pupil from a particular racial, ethnic, cultural or national background or treat them less favourably during the admission process. Uh, and that's what we actually see. We see less favourable treatment. Yeah? Ways of discriminating that might be more subtle, that are discouraging to young people, that don't give them, that don't uh, provide additional support during the admission process or make it clear that children do actually have some rights. And these are the particular barriers, or some of the barriers, and there's probably more than I'm going to mention here, but we see an enormous variation in practice between schools and education settings that are tremendously welcoming. You know, they see it as part of their ethos, uh, who they are as a community, to be a, uh, a place where everyone in the local community can, can get an education. And they extend that to parents and carers and other family members. Uh, and we see at the other end of the spectrum, schools that are increasingly choosing uh, who attends, yeah? which children are kind of undesirable, which children might need uh, more resources. It includes disabled children, children with English as an additional language, children again with uh, you know, an unclear status. Um, young people often don't get information about how to access school. Yeah? You know, what, what, what do you have to do? What are the steps to do? Do you, go, do you just go and call at a school? That, I've seen that many times. You know, families see school, so they just go in and they ask, can we go here? Uh, sometimes they get a lot of help, sometimes they kind of get the brush off and they're told to go, you know, you've got to go somewhere else to do this. It can be very dispiriting and, and time-consuming. Um, the fact that many, many asylum seekers and other migrants are living in insecure and temporary accommodation is another important barrier, uh, especially if you watch that film, um, How Am I Different? Seeking Asylum. It's a, the big factor of the, of the girl in that film, uh, her change in her accommodation. And the difficulties of, you know, you just started a school in Croydon, suddenly you're reaccommodated to Haringey in North London, you know? I mean, your family hasn't got much money. How on earth are you going to sustain uh, attending school every day? There's, there's confusion about entitlements from schools and other service providers. And we've seen over the years a number of practitioners make kind of subjective personal legal judgments. Like, for example, here's a common one. Looking at documentation and seeing in someone's passport no recourse to public funds and deciding that that means oh, you can't attend public education, you have no recourse to public funds. It's completely unlawful because uh, local authority education is not a public fund. That's quite clear. But someone's made this judgment that you know, they've read that. Um, of course, they've got to be very careful. They're actually discriminating directly there. Um, what else? Services provided to help young people very, very greatly. Uh, services often don't meet the particular needs of young migrants. Uh, the people that are often helping uh, young people, like social workers, are often frequently changing. Um, people often have uh, a lack of good advice that's particularly specific to their status. Many mainstream organisations don't have the experience or the knowledge that's needed. Obviously, I mean, this has been touched on, the lack of funding, the lack of capacity, the cuts in services, the cuts in legal aid are having an impact but also the lack of trust that people might have in services. And I think this is a key issue, the lack of sort of consistent, sustained support and advocacy. And I'm just going to read you one quote. How am I doing? Right, right, so all right, I won't read the quote then. I'll just, um, I'll just end with the last slide. I mean, these, these are the um, sort of areas, I think, that we can look at building on and improving services, but also areas that you know, uh, colleagues here might be interested in researching and looking at further. We've got to hear more from the voices of young people themselves. You know, the, the, the kind of research that uh, is based on that is often really powerful and extremely relevant. I think we need to explore peer advocacy. 
and the role of young people being advocates and trained to work with the most marginalised and excluded. We need to look at young people's own, net, own social networks and friendship networks. We need holistic, multi-agency approaches. Um, we need to support schools and people working with young people to better understand their needs. And uh, I think this as well here, the role of supportive, reliable, consistent adult support. And I'm just going to end, I'm going to end with this little quote. So. So I don't know we'll end, uh, Sarah. Um, a really good report from UNICEF, uh, Leveling the Playing Field, 2010. Provis it's about the provision of services to unaccompanied and separated migrant children. This, this is the paragraph that really hit me. I, I thought this was an extremely important conclusion, they say. Many of the unaccompanied or separated migrant children and young people interviewed had experienced supportive, reliable and consistent adult support that had made a significant difference to their lives compared to their counterparts who were more isolated. The findings showed that this support came from a number of different people, professionals and non-professionals, who, who were committed to helping them achieve their goals. Many children and young people also found support and security within the school environment or community. The key is that they felt able to turn to these adults or groups at any stage, and as often as they needed to, and knew that the support was there. I think that's telling us something really important about people working with young people and their commitment and how those young people actually see that as being a, you know, absolutely central to help them access services, education and otherwise. Thank you. <laughs> Need a glass of water now. <laughs> okay, I'll just turn this on. One final presentation. Okay. Okay, um, good afternoon. No PowerPoint, but I'm actually happier speaking standing up and that's partly due to my background, not Although I'm now working at uh, Working Lives Research Institute at London Metropolitan University, I'm by background a trade unionist, and, uh, and I suppose I'm approaching this, this theme from that, and it, it's still my hobby. Um, we're just in the middle of, of, of launching a ballot for, for strike action over redundancies at work, so I've given up on that side of the work. But also, I, I still do quite a fair bit of representation of individuals, and I've found that an enormously instructive way of actually understanding the dynamics of what's going on in workplaces. Right, I'm going to talk about, the, the title was about wages, theft, and uh, 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 contribution evasion. And just a quick word about what I mean by wage theft. It's not on this occasion two burly blokes in stocking masks uh, take nicking the, the, the pay bill because no one has a pay bill anymore, so done, done through banks by and large. But it's, it's, a, it's a term which has come from the States, which has been used, I think, to try and identify or, or, or to break down the distinction which exists in a lot of law, law, legal um, uh, considerations, the difference between uh, civil and, and uh, criminal uh, offences. So, for example, if, if a, an employee takes food from the restaurant they're working, well, that's theft, that's a criminal offence. But the employer fails to pay them for the time that they've spent working for them. So, in other words, they've sold the only thing they have, their time. That's not a criminal offence, that's a contractual offence, it's civil. So, in America, they're talking about wage theft as being non-payment or underpayment of work done which pay was promised and I think that's quite an important point. I'm going to touch on experience from two projects I've worked on, uh, one working with migrant domestic workers in the UK uh, and one just finished uh, looking at posted workers in, in five European Union countries, a posted worker being somebody who's employed and normally resident in one member state but working temporarily uh, for, another, for a, a client in another. I'll touch on what some other researchers have found in this field and then make a few conclusions. So the first one I wanted to talk about is, is, is the project I've recently finished with Lena Kumarapan. Um, the report came out, finally printed, <laughs> uh, at the beginning of this year, but actually was finished in the summer. It was funded by the Nuffield Foundation. We were looking at the employment conditions and uh, breaches of those uh, rights experienced by domestic workers. These are people, by and large, who were here on visas. So not undocumented workers, they're, 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 they're workers with the right to work, uh, which has just been severely uh, curtailed, by the way, and, and what possible means of redress they had. And I'm not going to go through it into a hu in huge detail the technicalities, except to say domestic workers are quite an interesting group because 
they're very specifically treated in employment law. Work in the household isn't covered by health and safety legislation, although, as anyone who looks at the figures knows, it's probably where more accidents happen than anywhere else. But that means that the restrictions on the length of the working week do not apply to domestic workers. Rest periods do, entitlement to holidays don't do, but not how many hours they can work. I mean, there is a, a, effectively a limit, but it's not the 48 hours which applies to everyone else. The other thing is that the national minimum wage may or may not apply to uh, domestic workers. If you ask the uh, employment rights line, they say it's not. If you ask ACAS, it say it is. Uh, and the distinction is, if you're a family worker, you're not entitled to the minimum wage. And therefore, if you're treated as a member of the family, which can cover a whole range of behaviours, I might add. I mean, you know, actually being treated as a member of some families is no favour. Um, but if you're treated as a member of a family, then you're not entitled to the minimum wage. But actually, one of the things that we came across, we did come across an awful lot of underpayment. Largely, this was associated with enormously long working hours, effectively being on duty all the time, sleeping in the room of the child and the adult and the caring for So if they woke, you woke but otherwise being on duty all the time. Uh, the other thing being not being paid what you were promised. Uh, but something which cropped up a great deal and which we hadn't really expected, or not to the extent we did, um, a survey conducted by United Union found more than half of the, the workers, these are workers by and large on visas, so ostensibly legal status, didn't get any paces. And in interviews we did, we did 22 interviews with domestic workers. It wasn't in our script to ask about this, but 16 of them volunteered the, issue, the fact that they were having a problem with their documentation about uh, deductions. And that struck us as quite significant. It tends to mean what ha was happening is that either they didn't always get the payslips, or they didn't reflect what they were actually being paid. Uh, I'm dealing with a case at the moment. Um, somebody who'd been promised £1,300 a month net as their pay, which given the number of hours she was working, more or less was the, the minimum wage, more or less. But some time into the employment relationship, suddenly the employers say, well, we're only going to give you some of that in a cheque and the rest we're going to give you in, in cash. Um, and you need to look at how those figures work out. When she was the properly employed, £1,300 net shown on the payslip, the deductions, that's to say for her tax and national insurance and the employer's contribution, were £434 a month. Once they adjusted those sums to pay some in cash, that dropped to £115 a month. In other words, saving them £320 a month. And that's quite a lot of money. That's quite a lot of money. But it's not a lot of money to them because the, 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 the husband in this case, the woman was a career consultant, if you can stomach the thought. Um, he was actually a director of a major, he's actually a director of a major financial services company. £3,800 a year to them, it is a small change, but they're prepared to break the law. And there's a, a general institutional hatred of paying tax of any sort by the people who are very wealthy. And this is now spilling over. Um, I mean, ordinarily, I think they think it's for the little people, but obviously not for the little people that work for them. Um, uh, one of the people we, we, we spoke to, we interviewed, uh, she's got indefinite leave to remain, but described a working career of 13 years as a domestic worker in which she was not certain that deductions had ever been paid to the state, although she had a national insurance number. Um, uh, and it's worth just saying what difference that makes. So this is a contributory benefit. Right? Now it's 30 years it takes you. You've got 30 years contributions to get the generous, I think it's £110 a week. Uh, basic state pension. So every year you don't work or you don't get credited anything costs you £3.25 a week when you retire. So 13 weeks, I mean, that's, that's 40 quid. 40 quid a week you've lost when you retire. These are substantial sums of money. They do have. So now I have to say, this isn't associated necessarily with their migrant status, and I'll come on to that. But migrants are probably disproportionately represented amongst this group. This group. Um, the other area I've recently been looking at, posted workers funded by DG Employment of uh, the, the European Commission, where we were attempting to look at how posted workers could enforce their own rights. So we weren't now for once looking at the supposed disruption of the home 
labour market caused by posted workers, but what the posted workers themselves experienced. And we ambitiously said, well, we're going to interview 15 posted workers in each of the, first 50, the five countries we looked at. Well, we almost did that in a couple of cases, but everywhere else it was a nightmare. Now, these are EU citizens. Free movement of labour is a basic fundamental of the uh, Treaty of the European Union, and yet it, they proved more difficult to get them to talk to us than almost any other group, including undocumented workers. Now, there's something going on there that makes you wonder what it is. And I, colleagues in Sweden did manage to get to do quite a lot of interviews. I think they did 14 in the end, all with Polish construction workers. Not one of those interviews was conducted with somebody who was still working in Sweden. They would only speak to them when they'd gone home, and so they did them on the phone. And what it appears to be associated with is this very widespread cash payments going on. And I think that is, again, back to evasion of social security. The nature of posting is that you are supposed not to have to pay your social security contributions in the country where you're working, but in the country of origin. So you have a certificate to say we're paying them back home. The question is, does the home, do the home authorities look at them? Well, I can tell you in the UK, they don't care. They don't ask. Don't ask, don't tell is quite clearly their approach. They never want to see an A1 form, let alone check up whether anyone's actually paid. But a few examples we know of where it has happened, the, great, the Gang Masters Licensing Authority investigated the labour supplier who's providing Bulgarian workers into several places, so Scotland, Cambridge, who were ostensibly posted workers. But when they investigated, they went to Bulgaria showed them the documents that you give them, say, oh, all that is is a form that he's used to apply for the posted status. We rejected because none of these workers had worked for him before. We weren't sure that he was ever going to pay him. We would never have an idea what sort of social security contributions he was going to be paid. And I think this is very closely tied up. That where there's a hole, the employer will go through it. Um, we did a little chart of social, employer social security contributions. I shouldn't have been with Belgium's there, the UK's there, I think it's Denmark and Slovenia below the UK, out of 27 member states, on how much an employer pays contributions to Social Security. So there's not really much point in posting workers to the UK and then paying domestic rate of uh, Social Security because you lose money. But on the other hand, no one gets lower, below zero. The idea really is to pay no Social Security contributions, and I think. When we get to finish plotting the number of posted workers we know of as a proportion of the workforce against the employer's contribution, we will see a direct correlation. A lot of workers are posted into Belgium because it's very expensive to employ people there. So it makes much more sense. Uh, it makes sense to, for temporary agencies based in Luxembourg to recruit French nationals resident in France to work for the temporary agency in Luxembourg, but be placed with a client company in France. They never actually go to Luxembourg, but they pay the much lower rate of contributions to Social Security for the Luxembourg state. So, um, I wanted to touch quickly on whether or not this is, is, is this about migration primarily. And there's two little bits of work I would mention. One by uh, uh, Ruth Milkman and Nick, Nick Theodore, where they did a lot of work in the States looking at low-wage low workers. Some work done by Anna Pollard and other colleagues looking at um, enforcement of rights. And we do see a lot of this non-payment of wages, or as they call it in the States, uh, wages theft, but it is not only directed at migrant workers. And actually, they had a big enough sample in the States to have a look at what was the determining factor. Migrant workers are disproportionately represented in the group of people who face wages theft and, for that matter, contributions of age. But when you actually look at what is the most determinative factor, it's occupation and industry. In other words, the workers may be disproportionately migrant because of where they're working, but, and this is a really important one, because you, whenever you talk about migrant workers, it's all about they are driving down wages. Well, actually, the migrant workers don't have any influence over wages. They take what they can get, just like most of the rest of us. The people who drive down the wages are employers. And that is actually what Theodore uh, and colleagues have found, is that it's, if it's associated with the industry, it's not the presence of migrants, it's the behaviour of the employer. 
And I think what we've found with posted workers and with the domestic workers is an almost total absence of ability to enforce the rights. If you want to find out whether your employer is actually paying contrib the contributions they're deducting from your wages, it's almost impossible to do so. You can tip off HMRC if you think it's not being paid, but in the last year we have figures available. We know that of, I think uh, 2,000 complaints made against employers and listed for investigation. 14 investigations were carried out. They don't chase up employers to see if they pay the contributions. We know that a lot of employers have dodgy and I numbers. There's 1.9 billion pounds of unattributed national insurance contributions swimming around in the treasury, which can't be associated with anyone's contribution records. Um, the conclusions, I will be very quick because so, uh, I can see the hand being waved at me. These problems weigh heavier on those in a weaker position in the labour market, but it's a problem for everyone. Um, and, and that's a really important one. Um, there are serious problems of exclusion from benefits for, for migrants, and, and we've heard some of the difficulties there. But this problem is not primarily caused by the migration regimes, although they exacerbate it. There's no question if you think you're going to be thrown out for complaining, you're, not, you're less likely to complain. But it's the deliberate weakness of enforcement of, the, of their obligations which exists for employers. And I, and I think that's where I wanted to end. Is I think what we've picked up is that um, the difficulty exists with the, a weak regime of enforcement, and that then disproportionately affects migrants. But it doesn't only affect migrants, and it may not even be the case that the majority of those are affected by migrants, but just more of them than there ought to be.